0: Well, hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley, and I've written stuff. Enough about me. Let's move on to you, Tom. <laughs> I'm Tom
1: Price, and I'm writing stuff. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> all right. And I teach uh, systematic theology and ethics. Uh, one of the places is
2: gordon conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, and I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and a Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. And today we are going to be discussing a blog post that I stumbled across uh, called A Meta Modernista's Take on Facebook's Rebranding. And what this is, is a, a discussion of the implications of the, uh, the metaverse and things like that, done by a guy named uh, Jason Storm. There's some other names in the middle that I don't entirely remember. Uh, he coined the term metamodernism as a way of describing where he thinks things are going or better, where things need to go, uh, given the failures of postmodernism. So he wants to see postmodernism replaced with metamodernism. That will likely be the topic of a future show. I'm not quite ready to do that one yet. But I found this uh, blog post of his, which is, I thought, really terribly interesting. And I thought it would uh, make a good topic for discussion. Um, He notes that Facebook's whole rebranding to meta and things like that and the creation of the metaverse says there are two reasons for this. Uh, first of all, the so-called Facebook papers, which revealed all kinds of unfortunate things about the company, like they knew that it was having a, um, a bad effect on, um, on people's mental health and things like that. And they just really didn't give a rip. They just kept going anyway. Um, and then along with that, they, uh, their audience was shrinking. They were losing, Uh, particularly young people, which is really what they were focused on, what their advertising goes to, and so on. And if they lose them, they're going to lose a lot of advertising revenue. So he he said they rebranded it as Meta. He's got a little bit of discussion of that and the significance of that. But also, uh, Zuckerberg created what he calls the Metaverse, uh, actually, our author here wants to call it the Zuckerberg verse. Um, <laughs> but the the idea here in the metaverse is that it's a virtual world. Um, it's a place where you can attend concerts. There are people who do concerts just in the metaverse. There are metaverse churches. Um, it's It's a an alternate digital reality that you can live in, play in, work in, all kinds of things. And Zuckerberg says, this is just going to be fabulous. <laughs> that's right. Well, However,
0: fabulous if it,
2: yeah, that's right. Fabulous for him if it takes
0: off, I guess, in the company.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the name Metaverse uh, actually goes back to a cyberpunk novel written in the 1990s called Snow Crash. And in general, things like what Zuckerberg is doing, some of the things Musk is doing and so on, these the ideas for these things come straight out of these cyberpunk novels. But what Zuck and Musk and others miss is that cyberpunk novels are always dystopian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what they're trying to do is create a utopia out of a dystopia, and uh, Storm right. is very clear that this is going to be a serious mistake. Okay, so that's the, the premise of the article. Yeah, one of the things that that kind of prompts in my mind is the
0: is the the reality that change, particularly technological change, always comes from the margins. It's never found in the center, um, and people on the margins tend to read. Kind of marginal literature, you know. You, you don't, you don't like, uh, you don't get inspired to create. I guess the metaverse by reading Anna Karenina or something like that. You you, you, get, you get inspired <laughs> because you, as a teen, were you know in the AV club and were considered an outcast, but you were really bright. And you, uh, you know, maniacally, you know, plotted to conquer the world, kind of like, you know, some cartoon characters on the Cartoon Network or something like that. And then, you know, you found I was thinking yourself. I
2: Dr. Evil.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, the, but then you go to zero to hero overnight because of many of the things that made you an outcast as a teen are the things that make you the center of attention and, 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 and kind of interest uh, and the this, and this sort of the target of, you know, angel funding and stuff like that when you're in your 20s. And then you come up with a bunch of stuff that disrupts the market. And then the next thing you know, you are the kind of status quo. And I think that's kind of what I'm seeing with this Facebook thing. I think that their day is is behind, you know, the best days are behind them. They're, I don't know how they're going to be able to recreate themselves because, well, Maybe I'm just an old fogey, and I just don't get it. You know, maybe maybe younger people really will get on the metaverse, like he like he thinks so they will. But, but I think your point is well taken in the sense that you know he, these guys probably read that stuff uh, when they were uh, you know in high school.
2: Yeah, and actually, well, one of the points the author makes is that some of this is likely to be '90s nostalgia. Yeah, um, The 90s, the era between the end of the Cold War and 9-11, um, it's a good period for nostalgia and you get the dystopian novels and things like that. So he thinks that that actually is part of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I find that easy to
1: believe. And yeah. it's us say, I mean, as at this point, it's an expensive hobby. I'm, uh, I think the their little machine runs like 400 or something at its lowest end. And I think the technology to interact with it requires a very upscale computer. It's not something somebody could go to with like their Facebook page. So at this point it's, it's a utopia for, you know, very special people. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, of course. Oh, go on. Chris. Well, some of the graphics that I've seen
0: connected to this have not been too impressive in my mind. They're kind of, they remind me, remind me of like Minecraft stuff you know, it's basically stuff that, you know, uh, appears to me to be like Legos. <laughs> I mean, I, now, maybe that's just because I'm, again, an outsider and don't really know how this stuff works. But I don't, I don't really get the appeal. But anyway, I'm sorry for cutting
2: you off there, Glenn. Yeah. Well, um, what I wanted to note, I, I, I'd like to go through some of the ideas in the, the article. Because I think I think this uh, the, uh, he's he's not I don't think in any sense a Christian. I don't think he claims to be, um, but he's got some really interesting perspectives that I think are really kind of worth bringing in. And he is he, he, he is incredibly well read, um, even in you know, for, he's a philosopher. And everybody who reviews his books talks about the depth of his reading, uh, the range and depth. But he's also, it seems to be, very familiar with the cyberpunk genre. He discusses Mm. a number of the books. But in particular, he he grabs on to Snow Crash, which is where the term metaverse came from. And this is, I'm going to read you his description of what Stevenson, the author of Snow, Snow Crash, had in the metaverse. Stevenson's metaverse is much like cyberspace, posited by Gibson, another cyberpunk author, and others, but with two significant differences. First, it is navigated by users as though it was a quasi-physical place. To quote the novel, you can't just materialize anywhere in the metaverse, like Captain Kirk beaming down from on high. This would be confusing and irritating to the people around you. It would break the metaphor. Instead of flickering into the metaverse at a predetermined location, a virtual avatar is needed to run around inside a virtual world. So it's not really like the internet at this point. Second, it can function as a kind of augmented reality overlay on the physical world, so that when a person is moving around in physical space, the idea is that an alternate meta-world is visible to them. And he says these are the two elements that Zuckerberg and company seem to be interested in imitating. So What you're seeing is, in Stevenson's dystopian vision, a cyber world that you literally have to move through as if you were physically present. It is cutting you off from physical reality, but it imitates it as you move from place to place. You can't just beam to another location but also this idea of augmented reality, which I'm only really familiar with from Pokemon Go, where you can put on your your glasses and see things that don't exist in the real world that are digitally created around you. Um, The thing that I am particularly struck by in all of this is something that Ken Boa, my uh, mentor, employer, and friend, talks about and that's that increasingly we are people who are living or trying to live in a digital digital world but we are analog creatures right this cuts us off from our bodies it cuts us off from real face-to-face social relations all kinds of things like that all of which are problems that even pre-metaverse digital technology was already doing right right I guess, you know, as so I think about the
0: aspiration, which you have is, um, you know, a, a, a metaverse in which the universe that we live in is replicated or, or reproduced uh, in terms of certain aspects. You know, obviously there's the physical characteristics of our world that have to be simulated, space, time, these things within that, Within that artificial environment. So, because, you know, we are creatures that are, you know, made to dwell in the, that kind of world. And so an artificial world uh, has to do that or it has to, repl- uh, you know, replicate that. But then you have uh, all of the, I guess, enhancements. Maybe you're better looking, more, I guess, uh, uh, capable of getting things done. Um, maybe you're wealthy would would have you that that allow you to be a success in that world when perhaps you're not so successful in in the world that we live in. Um, so there there are all those things. One of the things that gets you know I, I think about when i when I think about this particular thing is um, you know we t- you know the mention of of Captain Kirk and Star Trek and beaming in. You know, brings to mind the next generation Star Trek, you know, with Picard and all those guys. And they had the holodeck. I don't know if you remember that. But that was actually uh, about as convincing a metaverse as you could possibly want. But it wasn't so much a metaverse in the sense that everybody was entering into it. And it, was, it wasn't common, in other words. You could more or less program it to place you in a particular situation uh, in which you know you're and you're actually physically in this room and moving around, and somehow the simulation uh, is set up in such a way so that even as you move, the room it, it, it accommodates your movements and gives you the impression that you're in a sort of boundless space, when in fact you're actually in this sort of small space. But the the benefit of that was you know you could you could uh, interact uh with you know with your actual body you know with you know mm-hmm. in, embodied in an embodied way with that now i think that sometimes these you know goggles and augmented reality tools are striving for that but they're so crude yeah. and the other thing that is you know is is that in that in the star trek uh you know sort of uh, presentation you don't get a sense that anybody gets addicted to it that I, I can't imagine if it were that was that convincing. and I was you know like, remember uh, you know uh, commander data he would he would pretend he was Sherlock Holmes and he would you know go in and and be Sherlock Holmes I mean uh, why did he ever come out well <laughs> he could just I guess maybe the only reason you'd have to come out is somebody else wants to use the room but um, but if, if you got if you have a, a world in which say wealthy people could afford one of those for themselves and they just didn't like the life that they were leading it would be Kind of like the Matrix, you know, except, um, you know, you're actually physically in it in, a, in an embodied way.
2: Yeah, the lack of embodiment is a problem, but actually you anticipated where he goes next. Okay. The addictive nature of this kind of thing. Yeah. That it, uh, it's, it's escapism. Um, and if you'll pardon the expression, uh, Stevenson uh, in... Um, in, uh, what was it called, Snow Snow Crash. Uh, Steven, the way Stevenson described it, 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 this almost sounds like it was a tag phrase for it. When you live in a shithole, there's always the metaverse. Right, right. <laughs> and there are a lot of you know, people and, like that. Right. And, you know, we are in a situation where a lot of people, we, we are in a world that is becoming increasingly dystopian. Yeah. There's a long list of crises that people are dealing with, you know, COVID, Um, climate change, uh, war in Ukraine, uh, potential food crisis, um, inflation. I mean, we can sort of go on and on and on and on and on uh, all of the different things that are uh, crises that are being presented to us. And when you are in a situation like that, it's really, really hard to have hope. I'm it's almost, really hard to find purpose. Yeah, and so escape from this kind of nonsense is a kind of natural thing to expect.
0: I almost think that people like Klaus Schwab in the World Economic Forum people actually want us to do this, you know, because we're actually a physical, I guess, you know, problem to the world. Yeah. So if they could all get us into pods and eat bugs and just kind of live a virtual life. Um, we would save the planet. <laughs> you you yeah. and my, I going to get saved. they don't really have any work for us
2: to do anyway. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's another dystopian side. That's yeah. another element. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, the, the, the um, backing up to the point about escapism and, and try, I'm always trying to get a hold of what's going on on the reality zone with all of this and, and kind of trying to make sense of it, you know, metaphysically and then ethically, I think is important. So what you have going on in many ways with technology is is something very dependent on the creation itself in order to be, which in a sense, creation itself is dependent on the creator in order to be. So we have a kind of a twice removed. And so the question then becomes, you know, I think maybe along Tolkien's line is, is this a zone of subcreation towards, you know, just something that people have a kind of curiosity about? but it becomes a vice um, um, or is there something also connected to this that, that could be aligned with, with the virtuous where it doesn't have to end in these kind of dystopian and dark places. But this, this is really, really questionable area. And here's one reason, you know, is the, you know, if you think of what evil is in the Christian tradition, especially for coming out of, you know, the analysis of Augustine on, um, on uh, Saint Paul I mean you have you have evil being a privation right not having being itself and so it has to it, it you know what it what is going on there thrives off of that which is has being which is good this is why that kind of hyper that you're, you' you have no good in you you're all evil you you would literally be annihilated in in the Augustinian Christian tradition at that point. So, so this this notion that this depends on being a good being in order for it to have have its go, if you will, um, evil. It is there is kind of analogy going on between what what this kind of technology is. It, it isn't consciousness. It isn't material in the sense but it depends on both it's kind of you could say maybe it's an epiphenomena of you know conscious material agents creating something but it's that kind of uh place where is it a extension of consciousness um or is it actually entering that that terrain uh, of evil where it's dependent on a good thing but it doesn't because it doesn't have its own ontology and uh, it, it's not governed, therefore, by the, the material laws, if you will, or the laws of, of creatureliness the same way. It could be very evil <laughs> in, in, in intensity. Well, you know, there are a couple of things that come
0: to mind. One is it wouldn't it be great if Philip K. Tick were still alive and sort of, you know, writing in this sort of mode, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing is um, some of these guys actually kind of take this to the next level and propose that the world that we live in is a simulation. Right. You know, it, yeah. which maybe says something about what you're getting at, Tom. Uh, they yeah. they they actually think that, um, you know, maybe they think they're so clever that, you know, they're just kind of uh, rediscovering what has already been discovered by someone else. Is it God? Is it, you know, our descendants in the future? You know, who, who, who knows, <laughs> you know, how, how to make yeah. sense of this. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Musk, for example, thinks there's a good chance that we're in a simulation. Um, and the interesting thing about that is then if this is a simulation, um, our being is nothing more than a simulation. And so what they are doing is creating the metaverse in their own image. You know, they are, yeah. you know, they, they're extending on, they're extending the ontology one step further. If this is in fact a simulation, we can have a simulation within the simulation. It doesn't really change anything. It's fundamentally the same thing. Well, this gets, this brings to mind, you know, sort of the
0: platonic, uh, ontology with the idea that, that we do kind of live in a kind of downgrade or sort of step down from another level of reality, which is, uh, you know, eternal in character. And because this is a reality that is the realm in which, you know, non-being follows being, in other words, things pass away and stuff like that, that we're in a kind of simulation. And that's not the way Plato would have put it. That's not the way the Platonists would have put it, but it is an interesting thing. But at least in that way of thinking, there's a kind of hierarchy of being, and there is, you know, greater and lesser degrees of being. And in a Platonic way of thinking, Human, the human arts, and this would be one of the arts, is uh, a copy of a copy of a copy.
1: Kind of. Uh, well, that that's kind of what I was. That's what I was onto with the first point. So, at least with with in a, even a Christian Platonism, they, the the um, you know, the reality of creation is its participation in the forms or in the mind of God, right? In in the in you know the way they they are in the mind of God. But in this case. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, this like you mentioned, Descartes, I think this really has a lot going to that kind of configuration. That that um, that there is sort of uh, the ability to take the sensible um, and reduce it merely to uh, the, you know uh, the possible deception of consciousness that is superior to us, to which it tricks us into thinking that's, um you know, that, that's the case. Um, that would, you know, that would give anyone, much less Descartes, a, a headache. I don't think Descartes solved that issue, but I think the issue was flood from the beginning. Um, but that's too long to go into. Um, but it does work in a Cartesian, I think even more so in a Cartesian world than a, a Platonic one, even though I think the point is well made uh, with, with the Platonic um,
2: vision. Yeah, I'd like to get back to escapism because one of the things I went to as well is that Tolkien and On Fairy Stories talk about talks about escape as a positive thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a prisoner, we laud prisoners when they escape. Um, mm-hmm. We don't think so much, when, when we use the word escapist, it's a negative, but that's the only context in which escape is negative. So when we're looking at this, and he talks about it, the, uh, Storm talks about it as escapist. Is it escapist in the same sense that Tolkien is talking about it? Um, or uh, is this a sub-creation in the same sense that Tolkien uh, is talking about it? In a sense, I think the answer has to be yes. It is a kind of sub-creation. I am not sure, however, about the kind of escape it provides, uh, simply because, as Chris pointed out, with a holodeck, my suspicion is it ends up being addictive. Right. You know, and when when your life's bad, just go to the metaverse. It, it, it's an escape, but it's not a healthy one. Getting... Well, um, and, and I will add, by the way, I was at Michigan State back in the late 1970s to 1980 when I graduated and this was the first big dungeons and dragons scare. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And I I knew the and Michigan State was ground zero for a lot of it. <laughs> and there was a lot of nonsense that was published about what was going on and I knew it was nonsense because I knew the people. Right. And but the thing that that everybody missed about the real danger of D&D in that period was that it was addictive. Mm-hmm. I met guys who were really intelligent, so sharp guys who told me they would rather live in their Dungeons and Dragons campaign. It was called Foggy Mountain. Uh-huh. They, would rather, they would rather live within their Foggy Mountain campaign and spend all their time doing that than be in the real world. Yeah. And if you can do that on a pencil and paper role-playing game, they weren't even using miniatures or anything like that. If you can fall into it that far what happens with the metaverse? Right. I think the addictive quality is is a horrendous danger here. Right. Well, it's um this is an
1: interesting um way of kind of thinking about this, um, theologically and I think ethically is is what is it supplying, just like the Dungeon and Dragons games, that caters to our natural created desire for fulfillment, happiness, and And joy, if you will. I mean, there's something going on here to escape because it is supplying something that um, oftentimes gets in the way of of that that peace, that that joy, that fulfillment that we lack as creatures that only God can fill. This is where the old use versus enjoyment thing. you know, in Augustine takes place where it's it's okay to to use certain things with a certain kind of enjoyment, but when we latch on or become latched onto these things and and seek from them um, what they're not able to give um, in the long run, they become an idol. They become so. I mean, Dungeon Dragons you can make sense. There's a, an imaginative, creative element. There's community. There's friendship going on. Oftentimes, you're building relationships. Everyone's into it. You're important. You're a part of it. So you you have going on here something that, you know, that fellowship um, should be providing. Um, And then with Tolkien, you have the same kind of thing. What you have is imaginative ways of talking about those creaturely goods that legitimately can be things we celebrate and partake because they foretaste our fulfillment. But again, they can become dangerous when they they replace um, the eternal. So I don't know if that that helps, but I think it's a good way in asking some of the questions around addiction.
0: Well, I want to just reflect a little bit on say the difference between what Tolkien was up to and what maybe the metaverse people are doing. So and it actually kind of takes us back to Platonism. Um, now Lewis uh, was more of the Platonist uh, than Tolkien, uh, but I still think that Tolkien was a realist and with his writing, he would, he, if I I think we sat down with him and like probed, we would discover that he really believed that he was tapping into reality with the capital R when he was writing and that what you are escaping to is your eternal home. You could say in a, in a, in a sense, I'm not talking about it obviously in the, the fullest sense but in some sense you're you're enjoying something eternal in character that you will enjoy forever just like in you know the, the last battle in Narnia when we see at the very end they're in the real Narnia at last so yeah, yeah. you know we as readers of this Narnia you know stories uh are enjoying something and that is a kind of I guess uh you know sort of uh instantiated, uh, you know, sort of expression through literature of a, of a, of a more a thing that's more real now with, with the metaverse, I don't think these guys are thinking in those terms at all. I, I think that they're talking about yeah. phantasmagoria. I mean, that, that just your, your own sort of lust, something more in the line of like, you know, future world. I, and i remember future world, that science fiction story where people went to like a resort center where all these robots, Helped you, helped you to, you know, think of yourself as being like a gunfighter, or you know, in the old west, or like medieval, you know. And so you could go into that, uh, you know, sort of physical setting with these robots, and these robots are are programmed to give you pleasure. I mean, there's a obviously a, a kind of grotesque erotic element to to the future world, but also real danger in the sense that, or at least simulated danger, where you're like, you know, you know, in reality you know, John Wiener, Clint Eastwood at last and you're, you're beating all these gunfighters. But if you remember in the story that there's one robot in particular played by Joel uh who is the gunfighter robot yeah. that starts killing people, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so the, the, the simulation yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it breaks, that breaks up. But, but I think that they're, they're just drawing on this world and our fantasies. They're not drawing on yeah. eternal things you know the inklings were drawing on the eternal and yeah. and trying to represent it in the literary uh forms
2: yeah the the um there's another side of this that's also worth noting um uh he he goes through several different things in here um uh, first of all he takes the roots cyberpunk Um, cyber is, um, virtual, you know, virtual, you know, and punk is sort of the style in the cyberpunk books. You've got this, this sort of, well, punk rock punk type style combined with the, the virtual, uh, virtuality, Um, He comments that Zuckerberg is all cyber and no punk, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought thought was a great line. Um, But but to take it a step further, he says the ideology behind this is, as he describes it, a particular version of broadly libertarian techno-utopianism that imagines the solution to the present moment is to even more fully unleash the productive powers of capitalism. In, in this respect, the central feature of Zuckerberg's iteration of the metaverse would seem to be its capacity for monetizing escapism. And that's the thing we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, well, actually, Tom brought it up, the very fact that you got to pay big bucks to even get into this thing. Um, he anticipates that the whole thing is going, much like Facebook has, it's going to turn into an exercise for advertising and finding ways to get people to pay money for their escapist fantasies.
0: Yeah, you can see a product placement, you know, like if you go to your yeah. if you go to your metaverse refrigerator and open it up, there's nothing but coke products.
2: <laughs> Stuff like that, you know? Well I'm glad you said coke products <laughs> instead of just coke. That would have been a different <laughs> concept. Right, right. Um, <laughs> different addiction there <laughs> yeah um, yeah he uh, uh, now the author is is very much against modern capitalism as he calls it, although I think what he really means is what I would describe as consumerism. I would argue that there's a difference, yeah, he- but he doesn't seem to make that distinction.
1: Yeah, you see that all over the—I mean, you see it in the theological world as well. I mean, they, you know, and sometimes, you know, they'll see sort of Calvinistic evangelicals as basically the scaffolding that upholds politically that kind of that, that kind of consumerism. Thus, it expresses itself ecclesial in their churches by the kind of, you know, user-friendly services and the like. And maybe there is a kind of a kinship there. Um, I think that cl- you know, classical reforms wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have really uh, been amenable to with with their development of economics. And I, and I think there's a legitimate critique to be made there. Sometimes I think those you, you fall into this trap of of being forced to defend something you don't need to defend, which is a perversion you know, perversion of of an economic system that does end in these kind of exploitative dimensions like consumerism and cronyism. Well, you know,
0: my my take on the academy and its contempt for capitalism is more cynical. I think that we're dealing with a lot of people who couldn't make it in the economy, and they resent the fact that there are people out there who have more sort of social authority than they do, simply because they're successful. <laughs> That's my take on a lot of it. so. And, and I, I know I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a, um, a fully aware of all of the limitations of capitalism, yeah. but I think Glenn is right. There are the limitations of materialism and uh, our yeah. tendencies to throw ourselves into sort of consuming to find happiness. I think that's, to me, that's, that's all, that's all uh, right. But it, it's kind of closely related to uh, the contempt that uh, Bohemians have for the bourgeoisie. I and mean, you just, it's, it's all kind of uh, part of the same sort of uh, self-congratulatory uh, yeah. sort of, uh, intel, you know, intellectual self-congratulations.
2: Yeah, in this in this case, well, the the author. Well, let me let me read you another paragraph. Um, largely because this made me think of masks, um, um, COVID masks. Right. I'm also mm-hmm. reminded of one of my favorite underrecognized science fictional dystopias, namely M.T. Anderson, Feed, two thousand two. So the book is called Feed which imagines a future in which almost every American citizen is directly connected to a feed net or internet via a neural link. All the world's information is only a thought away. But instead of making people smarter, the feed is dominated by corporate propaganda or advertising so that, for example, when people start getting skin lesions, instead of addressing the epidemic or its cause, they are bombarded with propaganda about fashionable lesions, and advertising various products to accessorize lesions and so on. <laughs> Replace FeedNet with Zuckerverse, and that's perhaps what we seem to be heading toward.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I I do think that you know, we see it psychologically. So you know, you know, we we're old enough to remember when people who thought they were the opposite sex were. Considered mentally ill. Now it's something to parade and celebrate and accessorize and make a lot of money off of. And that's now. This is an expression of capitalism. I have no problem condemning this uh, tendency yeah. to play to our, I guess, uh, mental sort of, uh, just sort of, uh, well, problems and uh, you know, play to them and make figure out ways to make an income from them
1: yeah Yeah, that's right The, the the telos of this form um is not the the good um you know god or anything that is of of significant good for these these people it's clearly power profit and exploitation and in these cases they are a perversion of the intentions of, of people who, who want a kind of properly formed communities with the right institutions governing the, those kinds of passions in the right kind of direction. So the flourishing of the economy and free markets works the way it, it should with the limitations of human fallenness and the rest. This is thrown out the door, <laughs> and then you have kind of also there is a cronyism, I and mean, you see with Zuckerberg, um, the way in which politically he's invested in, in those, they're going to keep him as part of that, uh, that that elite sphere, um, that is going to have massive amounts of control and, and if not monopolizing on some of this territory, and, and therefore. You know, and and impacting people, um, like you said, depending how far this kind of goes with addiction and and uh, training people young to be unproductive, you know, yeah.
2: um, these kinds of things. Yeah, and you see it in not just Zuckerberg, but actually in the collusion that takes place between the various uh, tech companies. If one person gets banned in on Twitter, let's say. Um, He is suddenly demonetized or removed from YouTube. He is blocked in Facebook or shadow banned. Um, You know, virtually all of these things work hand in glove um, to enforce a particular ideology, particular way of looking at the world. Right. Now, the other danger, though, and this also exists in metaverse, is um, that people... People tend to gravitate towards silos and echo chambers so that, um, you know, and again, this is something that Storm brings up. One of the problems with the metaverse is you could get people living in silos, you know, that they just they just listen to people like them. It becomes an echo chamber where everything gets louder and louder and louder. And that could potentially cause real world problems as well as, you know, sort of psychological issues within the metaverse and outside it.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that, although I do think it has its analog uh, in the physical world. I I think that cities actually function that way. I think that cities are often places where uh, people who are unhappy, you know, uh, and are looking for people like themselves uh, journey to, uh, you know, you think about all the the unhappy people from like middle America, you know, maybe kids that were a little bit different uh, and were, you know, unhappy with the kind of the small mindedness of their town in Iowa or wherever. And they go to New York and, you know, they find in a place like that, that there are a bunch of people just like them, you know, whatever their lifestyle predilections are. Uh, and, you know, they, they kind of live in their silo. Now they, they're confronted every day on the subway and on the street with different sorts of people. That's true but there is almost a kind of agreement i i've at least seen when i've lived in like boston or you know i've got a pretty significant amount of time in my life that i've been in major urban centers and, and there's almost like an agreement that everybody has not to really kind of interrupt interrupt each other's sort of like uh time in their sort of like uh small community so like even with when you're on like a subway you know like if you're on the t in boston there are the people who are from a particular ethnic group or sort of social class and they'll interact with each other, but they won't interact with anybody else, you know, unless they absolutely have to for some reason.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think that you, uh, what I've seen in, in terms of, you know, and again, this is just kind of impressionistic, but I've noticed, especially post COVID, um, this was going on prior, but there, there's an increasing impatience um, with other people in in public. I mean, you you, you kind of see the stuff that goes the viral. The people at fast food, if they have to wait for their order, they're getting on fights. They're jumping over counters. I mean, there's so certain kind of unruliness and intolerance of it right now. Um, but on the other hand, I I, I notice that in everyday interactions and. In, you you wonder how much of the dependency we are on technology to do things quickly fast um instantaneously is affecting those areas of our lives where where we 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 will stumble into other human beings who are imperfect can't do things immediately all the time will mess up will get the order wrong and and it's almost we we're demanding of the person who works you know at you know, Burger King to work the same way as my phone. You know, in in delivering. You know, right then. You know, or the next day, exactly what I want when I want for the price I want. And so, I think these the the impacts of the this stuff. And you just imagine someone who has their head in another verse all 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 day, um, having to actually come and interact in any significant social way or toward. You know others is going to be incredible. The only the only uh,
0: example that I can think of from literature or science fiction where you see addiction to what we're talking about here is uh, Hyperion, which is a book by Dan Simmons. Uh, it's uh, got a very sort of uh, theological character. If you haven't had a chance to to see it, but in that in that universe, you've got a galactic civilization that's as vast and as interesting as say what you find in dune but there's also a kind of like a intergalactic net and there are people who Hmm. like live in very tawdry physical environments but are actually uploaded into that and they are sort of mentally in that uh, sort of addicting uh supercharged fast environment and just cannot leave they, 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 I think they would even die if they tried. Um, are we heading to that? Um, but that's you know. I guess the thing that's you know, getting back to the article, Glenn, that intrigues me is that the author uh, is pointing out that these guys seem to be nostal- you know, living in this, uh, in this sort of nostalgia for the nineteen nineties, uh, kind of inspired by these dystopian books, but failing to sort of see the dystopian aspect <laughs> the, 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 the the their ideal is the dystopia and that's something to think about you know yeah. are these guys so out of touch with reality that they can't they can't live in this world anymore um or bring themselves to live in it
2: yeah i think that that's that's a worthwhile question my suspicion is that they looked at the world and they said, gee, this is a cool idea. And they ignored all the stuff that they that all the warnings, frankly, that the the books presented. Um, I think that's really it. I don't think that they wanted the dystopia, but they thought the technology is cool and we can do this. And, you know, it doesn't have to go dystopian. I mean, you yeah,
0: know, so. Yeah, well, well, maybe that says something about their understanding of human nature, maybe that it's right. naive, naive and. Yeah one-dimensional
1: yeah i would agree with that yeah and they probably see technology as a means of kind of weaning out what's wrong with the rest of the world (laughs) so in that sense it is a form of you know science as salvation um there is this sense in which it's going to increasingly create a reality that is more and more removed from um maybe even death
2: (laughs) but but consider it this way You're Zuckerberg. You create the metaverse. You design it. You determine what is allowed in it and what isn't. And then you get people to spend, to work, to do their job in the metaverse, to get entertainment in the metaverse, to order their food through the metaverse, to socialize through the metaverse, and so on. And you control what they can get access to. I mean, you you are you are playing God on a very, very high level at that point.
0: I've also seen a attempt or maybe an argument for the legitimacy of the metaverse as actual sort of an opportunity to get into a new world early and acquire some important real estate and become a kind of a metaverse entrepreneur in which mm-hmm. you've got, you know, because there are certain features to the metaverse, if I if I am representing it correctly, that correspond to this world. So if you, let's say you own Times Square in the metaverse and uh, every sort of business in the real world that, you know, is represented in the metaverse wants to be owned by, you know, those corporations that have a, have a presence in our world, uh, you're suddenly in a remarkably powerful position to make some good money, (laughs) you know, selling them their own real estate, but in a different place.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And actually there, there are people who have put, who have sunk a lot of money into the metaverse to acquire specific pieces of property.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, it, it it's a continuous advertisement if if it's in in the in you know in the verse so it, it definitely uh yeah you, know, you know that that end of it is it takes a kind of dark form of calculating that i'm not used to entering into but but as you mentioned it
2: <laughs> yeah now uh, just a couple of things to uh, uh, to end up what he's um You know, his argument here, he is not a fan, okay? It should be pretty clear. Um, So he says that what's really important is that, first of all, we do our best to subvert the thing, to hack, subvert, repurpose, and re-engineer the metaverse to either liberate its emancipatory potential, he's falling for it too there, and take back its power for the people or shut it down that's so that's you know he he really wants to see this thing rested away from zuckerberg either by decentralizing it you know making it um making it more democratic or by shutting it down entirely but he says that that's the most trivial side of this remember he's he's pretty much an anti-capitalist he he quotes a guy named Mark Fisher who said that it often seems easier to imagine the end of the world than an escape from capitalism <laughs> which he says is really the root of all these dystopias they're imagining the end of the world because they can't imagine a system that's different um and he notes that and th- this is where it gets interesting he says you Cannot really get a revolutionary movement that is built around cynicism, nihilism, or political grievances. You can't build something out of a negative, which, by the way, is one of his fundamental arguments against postmodernism. It's a death work, right. it's an anti culture. It doesn't, you can't build anything yeah. out of it. Right. And he says the problem that we're facing right now is that people are really given to cynicism, nihilism, despair, um, political grievances, all of these kinds of things. We are in a culture that is angry. We are in a kind of dystopia. He puts it, it's understandable that faced with global pandemic, anthropogenic climate change, economic turbulence, and political polarization, many people seem to have lost their capacity to imagine better futures. But without being able to imagine a better future, you can't really change. You can't really change the present. I thought that it's was a, a very interesting observation.
1: Yes, it's interesting. I just I just read something it was talking about the the, uh, the plague right right uh, after Aquinas. Um, and talked about uh, Heiko Oberman wrote that the reason nominalism really took off was because the experience of the people could not see a created order the way that that in a pri- you know the the prior uh, emphasis with Aquinas and the rest because they immediately are coming out of the plague and so to see to see this kind of despairing um, and uh, kind of broken fragmented if you will uh, sense that helped drive. Um, that vision a bit, uh, it could kind of make sense. I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing it exactly right now when we're coming out of a lot of these things. And, and the thing is, is how fast it moves um, through uh, culture uh, once that despair sets in or despondency.
0: Well, you know, con- considering uh, the, f- the fact that there have been many utopian uh, experiments uh, in the physical world where people have really. It worked hard to create the kind of positive vision that this fellow uh, says that people can't uh, bring themselves to, to uh, pursue any longer uh, to me it indicates that there's something kind of still missing in his assessment. So, you know, you know, throughout, you know, the East coast, you see um, the remains of, you know, utopian experiments, um, you know, and, you know, the Shaker villages through, throughout New England. It, and, you know, it, you, you have an example there, mm-hmm. but uh, there are others. And what which, which you, which, which you're dealing with is not so much despair over, um, you know, people not being able to put the effort in to achieve something that they would love to be the case, uh, as much as uh, despair that the realities that we live in are you know sort of directing us in t- a certain way so there are communities who, where there' are still a lot of vitality and people are doing things but they're cooperating with the sort of they're working with the grain of reality so i'm in a I'm in a you know a church where the, um, and you guys have been here the median age is like like 13. We have so many kids; it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Families are big. Uh, everybody is, uh, you know, in a good mood, you know, almost all the time. <laughs> and and there's there's mm-hmm. a, a, a lot of uh, you know entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, there's a, a real positive regard for the physical world. Um, we have uh, a lot of great stuff, but people who don't want to form households, people who do not want to marry the opposite sex and bring children in the world, uh, don't look at us as their ideal. They think of us as sort of like a problem almost. Um, yeah. and, and and the fact that, th- that we're happy is an affront (laughs) because they want the world on their own terms. They want to be able to do it the way they want to do it rather than learn the wisdom of the world. You remember that book by Remy Bragg, the wisdom of the world, you know, the idea is, is that, you know, and Lewis gets into this in, you know, the abolition of man, you know, wisdom had been conforming yourself to the wisdom of that sort of embedded in reality. Uh, the modern outlook is to make reality conform to your vision.
1: Yeah, well that's that's that notion where, you know, where, where I often talk about the, uh, you know, the will that has, you know, the, the libertarian will that has no premise, right? The voluntaristic god enters into humanity and makes it in the image is that it can spontaneously create the world out of its wants and desires without having any wisdom and nature that has to conform to anything prior so that governs and orders that will and so this is exactly what you had this is one of the tensions i think that is going on that creates the friction is you have all, all this whole whole you know crowd that that wants to to basically use their will to power to to fashion the, the world they want as god um, and that bumps up against the world God has given to which we want to conform our will to, so that it harmonizes with and flourishes with the grain as it's ordered towards life and goodness and and beauty and happiness
2: so let me ask the question: do you think let let's let's go back to his argument that the culture is sufficiently despairing that it really can see no way out, and the only and as a result, it it just drifts into various kinds of escapism or anger or violence or things like that, the rioting and such that we've seen. Do you think that that is a reasonable assessment of where we are as a society? Yeah, I are think we so. in a state of nihilism, despair, and all of those kinds of things?
0: Yeah, I think at, at the level of popular culture, it's almost undeniable. Um, and at the level of sort of political discourse as well. Uh, but there are pockets of sanity. But the things that the prices that you have to pay in order to enter those sane pockets are not prices that most people are willing to pay.
2: Now, you know, I pointed out once on Facebook that life is a whole lot better if you don't look for excuses to be outraged. <laughs> right right you know um things just generally go better um i think what this does for us is it you know i i think his assessment is correct that by and large society is completely lost they don't they don't know where they're going they don't know what they're doing um yeah. people don't Really, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, we've talked about this before. It's the sort of disenchantment idea. They're desperate for some reason to live. They're looking for a cause, so they will jump on political bandwagons which feed on outrage or whatever, or they just go into flat out escape mode. And what this does, from my perspective, for us is it gives us a target rich environment for the gospel, except we have to know how to speak into those set situations. But we
0: also need to know how to disciple uh, converts. And that's, I think, right. where the huge uh, hole is. Yeah. So a place like uh, Manhattan, what you have with Manhattan is a huge, you know, there are a lot of things to like about Manhattan. I, I like the museums. I like the food. The energy is great. But the place is nuts. Manhattan is just uh, an anti uh, sort of real sort of anti natal environment. Uh, it's just not a place where, where families can form, uh, where you can raise kids. Um, it's, a, it's a playground for, for all kinds of perversity. And I think that, you know, efforts to, say, win Manhattan for Christ basically uh, endeavored to, I guess, palliate, uh, sort of play to that world and not fundamentally challenge it. Um, you know, you can have Jesus in your heart and you can still be, you know, in Madison Avenue and pursuing your, your career for the kingdom of God. But whatever that means, it doesn't ever seem to kind of get you into, uh, like a really healthy place. You just, uh, (laughs) are there with your friends and kind of living this weird nineties with speaking, speaking of nostalgia, you know, friends, you know that television show which i never watched i'm just aware of it because it's ubiquitous you can't escape it it's like sex in the city it's like you don't you don't even have to watch watch to know everything about it it's but you know it it, it, it was a it was a a complete fantasy you know these people who like live uh in this sort of uh arrested uh kind of state of adolescence uh into their you know through their 20s into their 30s and apparently Forever, <laughs> and, uh, who never formed yeah, families you. or anything, you know.
1: It's like that Hibbs book. A shows about nothing. You right. Know? Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, like Seinfeld. <laughs> lives
2: lives about nothing.
1: Right.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> Any, anyway, yeah, anyway, uh, from my experience with um, disciple making movements overseas, I think that we make a mistake when we think about. Converting people and then discipling them. I think what we do is we disciple people too and actually through conversion and yeah. then just keep doing it. Um that's what Jesus did with the apostles. He didn't ask them for a statement of faith until he discipled them for three years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The problem though, the big difference between, say, the third world, say some place like Africa, is uh and our world is that we have to recreate the world in the West. You know, in, in many yeah. parts of the world, uh the insanity of Western civilization hasn't sort of played itself out. Now we're in a world of radically individualized people who can't even think, you know, you know, when we were young, there were certain scripts that had already, you know, uh, kind of existed for forever that we were born into. And it was just, you know, a given that, you know, these are the things you do for a lot of young people. That's just not the case. Uh, they're they're kind of cursed with freedom, kind of in an existential sense that Sartre would talk about.
1: Yeah. You, you see, and, you know, I've, I've seen little these little interviews where people on news programs will go interview people in the inner city and on the beach. And, re, and really, the lack of just basic intelligence about basic things is is missing, which is scary and frightening. This means there's no point of reference and they're completely manipulatable. Um, But then there is no, there is no ordered pattern to life, Um, not even male and female. Everything is in flux. And therefore uh, they have, like you said, the curse of freedom in the sense that they now have to will their whole identity and everything. And you wonder why they're on medications and they're, you know, escaping and, and the like. And I think this kind of the escape of this is going to become more and more attractive because there probably will be you watch an ordered world inside of that metaverse that they're not getting in in the one that's been taken from them. Yeah,
0: I'm reading a book entitled uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism by uh, Matthias uh, Desmond, and he makes a point about this uh, problem with mental health. He said, you know, in a country of he's from Belgium. Uh, a country of 11 million people, there were 300 million doses of psychotropic medicine prescribed last year. That's bad. (laughs) That is really bad. Anyway, we've gotten to that time where we need
2: to wrap things up. Anything you want to tell us as we depart, Glenn? Um, I will put the link in the show notes and uh, I think it's a worthwhile little piece to read. It's short. Shouldn't take you too long. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening to Theology
0: Podcast. And we have some great news. We have patrons on Patreon. We have 14 people who are now, uh, you know, either uh, Rousseau's assassins or like, you know, grumblers or super grumblers. And if you want to learn more about what it means to be a grumbler, super grumbler and a Rousseau assassin, Uh, check out the link in the show notes that will take you to our Patreon page. And we just want to say thank you to the folks who have already, uh, you know, made a pledge to support the show. It's a big help. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot. And
1: bye-bye. Bye-bye.